may be seated. I want to welcome you this morning as we gather for Easter. My name is Brian White. I am so glad you're here, and I am so glad it's not snowing outside. <laughs> it's crazy, crazy. Uh, we just are, um, we started Holy Week last week. We're going to talk about this as we go through, but I, I, I want to just thank all of the volunteers and uh, the worship team, but all the people who've done so much this last week. Uh, we've had a couple different things. We started out Palm Sunday uh, last week, and we had a drama up here, and we had uh, Katie the donkey come through here, and then we had our Last Supper reenactment, and then uh, Friday Tenebrae, and just all of you who have done so much, we, we appreciate it so much. Um, you know, I, I am always struck, every time I walk into the sanctuary, with, with the gift of the empty tomb up here and, and the garden, and this is so unique, and I think sometimes we become store blind, but to have as our central feature the empty tomb in the midst of a garden you know the center of of most sanctuaries is, is a cross right some sanctuaries they'll have a cross up front and then there'll be a like a stained glass with the risen resurrected Jesus above it and, and that's just beautiful but I've never seen a, a sanctuary that there's just absolutely the central feature is an empty tomb in the midst of a garden. And I know they're out there, I'm sure, but, but I'm just, you know, it's very rare. In a Catholic sanctuary, you know, the prominent image is, is a crucifix, which is uh, Jesus still on a cross. And the crucifix is meant to remind us of, of Jesus' suffering. It's a very powerful symbol. The crucifix reminds us God understands suffering because of Jesus. God identifies with those who suffer because God's been there. God has experienced suffering. The crucifix is, is really about Good Friday. It's a passion, the day that Jesus hung on the cross, the day that he suffered, the day that he died. In most Protestant sanctuaries, the, the central feature is, is the empty cross, and they're again a powerful symbol. In Jesus' day, we don't always realize this, the, the cross was already a symbol during Jesus' day. But it was a symbol of torture. It was a symbol of the most horrific death imaginable. The crucifixion was designed to inflict as much, as much suffering on a victim as you could before they finally gave out and died. Crucifixion is where we get the word excruciating. Before Jesus... The cross was a symbol of torture. It was a symbol of, of pain. And it was a reminder of Roman oppression. In Jesus' day, the cross was a reminder of what would happen if you stood against the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman, once they crucified 6,000 people. And they, they hung them on a stretch 120 miles long between Rome and Capua. And it was said that people traveling for days along this road, they would see a new person crucified every hundred feet. 
God took that symbol of death and forced it to be used for his purposes. The Roman symbol of death became a powerful symbol that lasts all the way to this day, a symbol of hope and a symbol of life. The empty cross reminds us that we who were once lost have been set free. That Christ took his place for us. Jesus died our death, rose for our sake, so that we might have life. The, the cross is a symbol of grace. It's a symbol of absolutely amazing grace. But the center here is not the cross, as powerful as that is. It's an empty tomb set in the midst of a garden. And I'll tell you, that the, the empty tomb is a symbol of something even greater. It's a symbol of Easter. The empty tomb is a symbol of new creation. No matter how dark things appear, God can bring forth a new day. God can even bring forth life from the dead. Because God conquered death through the resurrection. Like the crucifix, you know, the empty tomb reminds us Jesus suffered on the cross to the point of death. And like the empty cross, the, the, the empty tomb reminds us that death was not the end for Jesus or for us. Because on the cross, the payment for our sin was paid and we're set free. But the empty tomb goes even further goes further than Friday, which was the day that Jesus hung on the cross. The empty tomb goes beyond Saturday, where we had an empty cross. But the empty tomb is about Easter, the day of creation, the new creation. The Bible tells us on Friday, right before sundown, Jesus was taken down from the cross, placed in a tomb, and a stone was rolled in front to seal it. The, this cave and this stone, it, it was, I'm told it was modeled after a tomb that archaeologists, some archaeologists actually think was the tomb that Jesus was laid in. They don't know for sure. But back then, a burial cave, it, it was cut into the rock, and, and then a very large round stone was placed in front of it, rolled in front of it, and it was fashioned out of rock, and, and it was there to seal the grave. It was very large, very heavy, and a very effective way of keeping people out. It took a lot of work to move those things. And that's exactly what the Gospels say happened on Friday. Jesus' body placed in a tomb, stone rolled in front of the grave, and his body was left alone. The next day was Sabbath. According to Jewish law, they, they, they had to leave his body alone until Sabbath was over. And, and so that meant all day Saturday, as the cross was empty, his body was in the tomb. Lori read the first 10 verses of John 20, and then Trevor read uh, the, the next eight verses. And you know, I'll tell you, John 20 is like my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. It's the story of what happened three days after the cross. It's the story of Easter. 
John tells us Mary Magdalene came very early in the morning to the tomb. And, and she found the stone was rolled away. And she thought grave robbers. And, and so everything else she thought that had happened on top of this whole week, everything that happened, that, how, can you imagine her emotions is the point. So she runs to get Peter and, and the beloved disciple, and then she finds them, and they run back to check it out, and yet his body's gone. All that's left are his burial wrappings. And at that very moment, John tells us the unnamed disciple believes. Believes. And the two men left, but Mary, she, she stayed there, just crying right outside the tomb. And the, the Greek tense here is really fascinating. It's called pluperfect. And, and it's, it, what it really means is there was an event in the past that just kept going, didn't stop. And what we're supposed to hear in there is time stopped in the midst of her grief. Her anguish had no end. And she bent over in the midst of her tears and she looks in and she sees something and John says that there, there's two angels in white on either side of, of the, the burial wrappings and, and we're supposed to read in there, you know, in the, the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament where there were, there were two angels on either side and that was the point that heaven and earth met. And they're just sitting there on either side. Woman, why are you weeping, they say. And she says, they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know what they've done with him. And then she heard something behind. And the gardener asked her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? And through her tears, she just doesn't even know what to think. And she said, sir, if you take him my, his body, let me know and I'll, I'll take care of him. And the gardener says, Mary, or in, in some of the old manuscripts, it's Miriam, which is in Aramaic. That's her name. That's what she would have been raised hearing as a kid. And she knows the voice is the point. And it's, it's, it's not the gardener. Rabbi? Jesus. So they talk briefly, and he tells her to, to, to go to the disciples. And the point is, her, she came face to face with Jesus in the midst of this unending anguish and grief. She met the resurrected Christ, and everything changed. Listen to what John says happened later that same night. John 20, 19 through 23, when it was evening on the first day, the first day of the week, the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Shalom Elohim. After he said this, he showed his hands and his side. And the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. 
So the disciples, they're, they're, they're in this locked room. I mean, they're, they're afraid, right? And they come together in the midst of their fear. Uh, they killed Jesus. And they don't want to follow him to their own cross at this point. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, he, he just is there among them. And their fear changed to gladness and joy. There's one more story I want to share with you from John 20 before we, we can really understand what's going on here. It's in verse 24 through 29. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and I put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hands in his side, I will not believe. And John tells us a week later, the disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was among them. And although all of the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out and put your hand in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas replies, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, have you believed? Because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have seen, not seen, and yet have come to believe. So John 20 records four different encounters with the resurrected Jesus. Mary in the tomb in grief, Peter in uncertainty, the unnamed disciple, he, he believes. And then later that night, the other disciples are all hiding in fear, except for one, Thomas, in doubt. So the first thing John tells us, it's early on the first day of the week. And then within a couple paragraphs, he tells us not once, not twice, but three times, he says they're in a garden. And that's just in case you missed the last two verses of chapter 19, because he says it again twice in the last two verses. So, you know, if, if John tells you something five times within about two or three paragraphs, it's really important. We're supposed to get here in the garden. Mary thinks Jesus is the gardener. And John wants us to think Jesus is the gardener because he is the gardener. He's the new Adam. The first Adam was the first gardener in the first garden, in the first creation, in the beginning of Genesis. This is a new creation. This is the first day of the new creation. Genesis tells us Adam, his job, he was like commissioned to take care of the garden in the Garden of Eden. He was the gardener. And John is telling us the truth about the resurrection. Jesus is the new Adam in the new garden because this is a story of the new creation. 
John says, later that night, still on the first night of the first creation, that Jesus, he just appears to the disciples, and, and then he breathes the Holy Spirit on them. And there again, we're supposed to go back to the original garden, and, and God, God takes dirt, in, in Hebrew it's a damach, and, and, and he forms this human, and, and it's just dirt, it's just a damach, until he breathes his breath, his ruach, his spirit, into the dirt, and the damach becomes Adam. Adam, the first Adam, man, Jesus is breathing new life. His followers are the new creation. What was dead is now alive. This is the deeper truth of the resurrection. The cross was not the end of the story. The worst thing is never the last thing. Death does not have the last word, then or now. Easter is about new creation. It's about new life. It's about a new beginning, new creation, the first day of the week. So last week we journeyed through Holy Week and we, we followed Jesus uh, all week long. Uh, we followed him. And, and what we did was we followed him through the last week of the first creation. Wave the palms on Palm Sunday. The king was entering the city of kings. And we followed him all week. And the, the Last Supper on Thursday, for those who were able to come, it was a wonderful experience. And then they went out to the garden afterwards. And the disciples slept. And Jesus prayed, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine be done. And then they come and he's betrayed by a kiss and he's taken off. And then the next morning before the cock crows, he's already gone through two trials, right? And he goes through four more. There's six trials that he will go through on Friday. And then they take him and at 9 a.m. they nail him to a cross on Friday. And they take him down at sunset. Friday, he hangs on the cross. Saturday, the cross is empty. But it's still a powerful symbol of Roman torture and death. Saturday, death still had the last word. But the story wasn't over. Sunday, there is a new creation. If the cross was in the story, uh, loss and grief and fear and doubt would have defined the disciples. But that completely changed through John 20. I mean, what if Friday, the day that Jesus was hanging on this cross, what if that would have been the story that defined the disciples? Jesus on the cross. But the cross was not their defining story. Sunday morning, the empty tomb in the garden, that became their defining story. Not death, but life. God resurrects things that are dead. That's the message of the garden and the empty tomb.
God redeemed the cross. God bent the evil that was meant and he forced it into good. God brings life from death. This is a new creation. That is the message of Easter. In the midst of our sorrow, we can experience joy. We can have a new beginning. There is hope. The worst thing is never the last thing. God can take something horrible and use it for his purposes. He can bend it, force it into good. God still does this. God can take the most miserable of experiences and use it for his bidding. He brings beauty from ashes. He brings life from death. The resurrection says God can take any and all of our emotions, our human condition, and, and transform it. God can take the most miserable tomb of even the last couple of years, and we've had some pretty miserable tombs in the last couple of years. But God can redeem them. God can make that experience worth something. That's the message of the resurrection. The worst thing is never the last thing. Have you ever met someone whose life is defined by a tragedy? Maybe something happened, it was out of their control. Loss. Or maybe abuse. Or just neglect. And it defines them. You know, I can think of several people, more than a few people throughout my career whose spouse, you know, left them for a newer model. I remember a woman coming to my office less than an hour after she found out her husband had lost their entire savings gambling. She didn't even know he gambled. Real tragedies happen. Someone did something to them. It wasn't their fault. They were a victim. But it became their defining story. And this can happen with any tragedy. This can happen with illness. You know, a cancer or a stroke. I know plenty of people who have allowed those type of moments, those stories to become the defining story of their lives. And the resurrection says, no, there is a choice. You can choose to be defined by the resurrection. Every one of us, we're all going to experience some type of tragedy in our lives. We're going to be hit hard with loss and with grief. And we're going to be hit with death, every one of us. But the empty tomb in the garden tells us God can force life to come from death. We can choose to be defined by the resurrection. And we do that by giving the tomb to God. Because God brings forth life. We can give our experiences of pain and misery to God. We can hand them over to him and allow him to bend evil into good. And I can't tell you how God's going to do that, you know, but, 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 but I know he will. How? We take our fear and we take our anxiety and we take our anger or whatever it is 
wherever our tomb is, and we give it to God. And we say, take this. I don't want it to define me. I want to experience freedom. Release me from this bondage. Roll away the stone. I want to experience new life. I want to experience resurrection. I want to be defined by you, by the power that raised the dead to life. I don't want this death to define me. The message of the empty tomb in the garden is the message that God offers us life. If you accept his offer, you're given life. Earlier in the Gospel of John, we're, we're told that's the reason that Jesus says he came in the first place, that we could have life, life abundantly. Which is exactly what happens. As one by one, in John 20, with Mary and with Peter and the beloved disciples and, and the other disciples, and finally Thomas, they each become a new creation. Jesus meets them where they are. They start John 20 in pain. But they experience new birth, and we see this open up over and over. Each becomes a new creation. God was able to force this evil, the cross and the tomb, into something they never expected. They each experience the resurrected Jesus. And the light of the reality of the resurrection shines in their grief, and the darkness does not put it out. We've all been at the tomb, right? Like Mary, where you just can't see. Time stopped. And it's dark. And you can't fathom a future. But in the midst of her darkness, God brings life. There, there's so much in John 20. But I especially love Jesus and Thomas's conversation at the end. You know, Jesus does not force Thomas at all. He waits, he meets him where he is, he lets Thomas decide for himself, because we all have to decide for ourselves. Thomas gets to be the star disciple. You know, he, he's the one in all John 20 who gets to proclaim, my Lord and my God. Then John 20 ends with two fascinating verses. 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, you might have life in his name. Everything in John was written. So you might have life in his name. Did you notice the senses and the progression? So the beloved disciple, he believes when he sees the grave clothes. And Mary Magdalene, she believes when she hears Jesus' voice. And the ten disciples, they believe when they see Jesus. They see the marks. And, and, and then Thomas believes when Jesus invites him to touch his wounds. John tells us why at the end of the chapter, right? Uh, these stories are given so that those who don't get to experience him with these senses, the physical senses, that, that, that we might still come to have faith. 
You can be a new creation, but you have to believe this is true. Every Easter, I end my message the same way, and, and you know, I, I realize this is my 25th Easter message. I've been preaching for 25 years. It's crazy. And I did this last year, and, and I'll do it again next year. But I think it's important to hear. People will ask me, do you actually believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? Do you believe this? And you got to understand, I, I need this to be true. But I not only believe it, I'm counting on it. Personally, I mean, I've lost, I've lost friends in the last couple of years, and it's been a hard couple of years for all of us. I mean, I, people I love are grieving. My mom's here for the first time in several years. She's been very sick. It's been a hard couple years. I'm still seeing friends every week that we haven't seen for a couple of years. They've been watching online, and I'm so thankful for that. I need this to be true. I need to know when people I love are suffering that there's hope. That their suffering is not going to be the end of the story. The resurrection changes everything. I know this to be true. I can't imagine being defined by anything other than the resurrection. I mean, how could you go on? Especially in the last couple of years. I mean, the resurrection says the worst thing is never the last thing. I not only know this is true, I'm counting on it. I mean, I know, I've been in the darkness of the tomb with Mary where you just, no hope seems possible. But I've found that God can redeem our tomb. God can take our pain and our hurt and our suffering and force something good to come from it. God can do amazing things in our lives. But you have to open your heart to him. You have to offer these stories that define us, you have to offer them to him to work through and redeem. John 21, there's so much in John 21, but there's one story I want to leave you with. Jesus meets Peter. And it's during a fish barbecue, of all things, and they're having breakfast. And, and there's a word, it's like anthrakia is the word, and it doesn't really matter, but it appears twice in all of the Gospels, only two times, right here and then in John 18. And, and it's, it's charcoal briquettes is the point. And after that whole chapter of senses, I mean, there's, there's probably nothing... Nothing that hits you like the smell of charcoal, right? We all know that smell. So in John 18, as Peter was denying Jesus three times, there's a smell of charcoal. So you skip ahead and 
Peter meets Jesus on the beach, and he's cooking up some fish. And guess what John says? You, you can smell. It's charcoal. And in the midst of this conversation between the two, for every time that Jesus had betray, or Peter had betrayed Jesus, Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? But there's so much more going on. In Greek, there's several different words for love. And, and one of them we may know, and, and it's agape. And it means like this selfless love, right? It's a love that we're supposed to have as disciples. And then there's another word, and it's phileo, and, and it's, it's brotherly love. So Jesus asks Peter, while well, he's smelling charcoal, and I'm sure the last time he smelled charcoal was when he was betraying him three times. He says, do you love me? Do you agape me? And Peter responds, I love you like a brother. I phileo you. And Jesus says, take care of my lambs. Then Jesus asks him one more time, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me? And he said, Lord, I, I love you like a brother. I phileo you. And Jesus said, take care of my, my lambs, or my sheep that time. And then the third time, Peter's getting angry. But Jesus says, do you love me like a brother? Do you phileo me? He doesn't ask him if you agape me. Do you love me like a brother, even? And Peter responds, I, I, I phileo you. I love you like a brother. And I think the point of that is, the same as John 20 with those four stories. Jesus says, if that's where you're at, brotherly love, we'll start there. Jesus takes us where we're at. And he says, we can, we can begin. If that's where you're at, it's okay, Peter. And for all of us, Jesus wants to meet us where we are. Where are you? Where are you? We can be people of the new creation. Where are you? You pray with me, Lord, I thank you for this day of new beginnings. I thank you for hope. I thank you for life. I thank you for new creation. I thank you for inviting us to start where we are. Lord, we ask that this might be a day of new beginnings. In your son's name we pray. Amen.